After that first journey with Barnabas, Paul decides to do something unique. He writes a letter to be passed around to the ecclesias that he and Barnabas had just initiated and encouraged. Now, I must admit, since Luke doesn't describe these writing sessions, there's fair debate about the timing of the letters. In Bible colleges across the world, you can hear debate between people about who the Galatians are and what time period Paul wrote the letter to them. But as far as it is up to me, it looks most likely that he penned the letter to the Galatians after his first missionary journey while being refreshed in OG Antioch. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our mind towards biblical worldview in the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, we'll open the Apostles' Mail. Seeing as this is Paul's first letter, it can be used as a template for understanding everything else he has written. If you do not understand the letters of the Galatians, you won't understand any of the letters in general. Galatia is not a city. Paul did not visit Galatia between Lystra and Derby, for example. Galatia is a region of land. It would be like writing South Florida, East Tennessee, Northern Illinois, something like that. Is a letter to South Florida for the people in West Palm? What about Miami or Fort Lauderdale? Jupiter? Boca? Hmm. A letter to South Florida would be a letter to them all. And in the same sense, Paul's letter to the Galatians works the same way. The region of Galatia was a Roman province that included all the cities Paul visited, other than those on Cyprus, in what we now call Turkey. Now, I mentioned that there is debate around this. This includes what part of Galatia he wrote to. There is a historical happening in the book of Acts in chapter 15 that we did not get to yet in our study. It's a conference of the ecclesia leadership to discuss what to do with the fact that the Gentiles were accepting the Messiah and joining the ecclesia all over the place. The northern Galatian view holds that this letter was written after that council in Jerusalem, something I obviously disagree with. This would mean it was written approximately the same time as the letter to the Romans. The people of northern Galatia were Gauls, ancient Celtic people, and they didn't show up in Paul's travels. The southern Galatia view holds that Paul wrote it before the Council of Jerusalem, possibly on his way there even. The people he writes to would be familiar faces because he recently visited them twice on his first journey. The populated cities of southern Galatia would be Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Perga, etc. We will see Paul's letter is more than a hello, an encouragement, and goodbye. He's writing with the intent to eradicate doctrinal errors creeping into the ecclesia that has been introduced by the Judaizers. Now, this is a group of people who demanded obedience to the Torah by Christian converts, which was normally considered the prereq for Judaism only. This is a big problem in a highly Jewish-populated early ecclesia of Jesus. 
So big of a problem that a huge council will form to discuss it. A huge historical event that Paul doesn't mention in this letter at all. One big reason why I think he must have written it beforehand. Now, this group is being spoken about, but their name never comes up in the letter. So, in commentaries, you'll hear about the Judaizers, or the Judaizers. There's a bunch of different pronunciations for it. But their name doesn't actually appear. Now, this group would be known as traditionalists. They rejected the apostles' teaching about grace. They undermined and unsettled new converts who were unstable, not yet grounded, persuading them to defect from the apostles' teachings. They have apparently suggested that Paul has a hand-me-down, game-of-telephone version of the apostles' teachings, and that they have the inside scoop. I say this because when reading someone else's mail, we often lack context, and we have to see things inferred, and we have to fill in gaps sometimes. And this seems to be the situation Paul is addressing in his letter. This group that has undermined Paul in Galatia believe they serve Yahweh, but Paul believes he serves Yahweh. Paul seems prompted to write this first letter because so much is at stake. This group was tampering with the true gospel. What does Yahweh require for us to be forgiven, to be given new life? Well, believe in the resurrected Jesus and entrust your life to him. That's it. But this group was teaching that there is much more, that we must be re-enslaved to the law as well. Well, let's jump into it. This is my favorite letter. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a pretty clear introduction. He also reintroduces Jesus clearly. This letter isn't just from him, but also from the Christian brothers in Antioch. So it's from Barnabas, Niger, Manan, Lucian, John Mark, etc. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There was a different gospel in Galatia. The new version from the Judaizers, Jesus plus law, or good works equals saved. Now, saved is a modern Christian term to encompass new life, forgiveness, and the promised resurrection. 
This turning from Jesus alone to Jesus plus is astonishing to Paul. And he says it's false. He says it's distorted. He says it's such a twisted message. It shouldn't be believed in, even if it did come from him or even an angel from heaven. This is a reducto ad absurdum, which is a method used by Paul when arguing a case. The hypothesis is necessary to show how absurd it is from the conclusion. Would God send an angel with a false message? No. So it's absurd to believe a different message. This group wasn't rejecting Jesus. They were adding to him, which is a common con. They seem like friendlies, but their gospel isn't Jesus. The work required to have Jesus welcome you is your own works of obedience. The true gospel is that entrances of the kingdom is based on the work of Jesus alone. That is what he always said. So the Galatians are confused. These young, new ecclesias are confused. Why would this false message even be attractive if it's worse news? It puts salvation back where we prefer it, in our own hands. There are groups in the world today that want you to think they're friendlies too, so that they can share a distorted gospel with you. That's something to watch out for. Paul says even if an angel comes with a distortion to not believe them, something that would have been a helpful rubric for some famous prophets who claim an angel appeared to them with a different path to God. Paul's wishes for these false teachers is not so friendly. He wishes that they would be accursed, which is the Greek word anathema, which literally means to stop communication. He wants the Galatians to cease communication with the liars and thieves. The very worst thing that can happen to an ecclesia is not persecution. It's when the majority of the members stop believing in the true gospel. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's not seeking to please the people. He says that would not be doing things as a servant of Jesus. The people in the ecclesias of Galatia have been coached to wonder why Paul had any authority. Why should his gospel be more trusted than someone else's? And this leads Paul to explain his resume, starting in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul doesn't think his message is handcrafted by him. He believes Jesus gave it to him. Is that a compelling story? A guy who would have totally sided with this uh, Jew law first is now on the Jesus alone train because of Jesus. A Jesus who set him on a course to proclaim his kingdom to the outsiders. Paul's impact has been significant in the early ecclesia. His repentance itself was a scandal. His message even more so. And Paul says he's not lying. Does this testimony in this letter match the details that Luke has given us in his historical account of Acts? It seems to. Now, Luke didn't tell us about his time in Arabia, but he leaves space for it. Paul's off the scene for quite a while before Barnabas recruits him to teach in Antioch. Paul's in the middle of defending himself as an apostle of Jesus to the ecclesias in the region of Galatia, a people who are being actively led astray by a group distorting the gospel. It can be inferred that this group was selling an idea that Paul was given secondhand information and isn't a true apostle. Paul's defending himself with a testimony of his calling and faith. Now, he's going to fill in some details about his second visit to Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. A visit to Jerusalem with two traveling companions, Barnabas and Titus. We had not heard of Titus before. They're visiting Jerusalem because of a revelation. And that matches what Luke told us about a visit that he and Barnabas made, that is, Paul and Barnabas made, to help with a famine around the time that James the Apostle was killed and Peter was arrested. Luke didn't tell us about Titus, but that really doesn't mean anything. Paul sought a private audience with the apostles to tell them about the development of the kingdom among the Gentiles, among the outsiders. His party represented the young international ecclesia of Antioch pretty well. You have Barnabas, the highly respected Jewish Christian. You had Paul, a scandal of grace. And then you had Titus, a Greek Christian. Part of Paul's belief in the power of Jesus was that a person did not have to change ethnically, culturally, or religiously to Jewish in order to join the kingdom. You could come as you are. Bringing Titus along was a test case of acceptance or discrimination for the Jerusalem elders. Basically, if the apostles demanded Titus' circumcision, which would be to become Jewish, then all the Gentiles would be required the same treatment, which is not good news. You have accepted Jesus? (laughs) All right, now give me your penis for a quick surgery. If the apostles accepted Titus as he was and saw him as a new creation of Yahweh and a brother, whether Jewish in any way or not, 
then the ecclesia would welcome all the Gentiles, all the outsiders that Paul was reaching in Antioch. Titus's presence is more than a travel companion. It's a living example of freedom in Jesus. When Paul says, for fear that I might be running in vain, it sounds like he has secret doubts about his message of freedom. However, that doesn't really match up with what he's saying everywhere else or the point he's trying to build in this letter either. We can determine that he wasn't insecure. He was just eager for validation. He knew his take on the gospel was authentic because Jesus gave it to him. And he knew that it was working in people's lives. But his concerns lied with whether the core ecclesia in Jerusalem would accept what Yahweh was already doing with outsiders. Would they accept new Christians as Christians? His mission was Yahweh given. So in a sense, he didn't need their thumbs up. But without it, the unity of the ecclesias would be in doubt. Paul desired unity based around the gospel. Those guys trying to get Titus circumcised to be an acceptable Christian would be false brothers. So here's the decoder ring for the letter of Galatians. Uncircumcised equals Gentiles or outsiders, and circumcised means the Jews or the insiders. All right, here we go, starting in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the leadership of Ecclesia in Jerusalem at that time was Peter and John and James, the brother of Jesus. And they approved of Paul's word to the outsiders, and they gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship or official approval, just asking them to remember the poor. The church must never lose sight of the poor when it gets focused on its mission for souls, something the Western church needs to reread. Paul and Barnabas were in town because of the famine with concern for the poor, so this would have been normative encouragement to keep doing what they're doing. Some scholars believe the whole ordeal is what Luke is trying to describe in Acts 15. But when we get there, we'll see some significant differences. But unity is a big theme here. Unity is based on a shared gospel. Unity also is built upon Yahweh's impartiality. He has no favorites. So in that sense, he really has no insiders. Paul respects the apostles, but he doesn't fear them. He recognizes they are pillars or spiritual giants as they have stories of actually walking with Jesus, but 
he's unimpressed with outward appearances and insider statuses. We are all children of Yahweh with equal standing. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Paul said he was seeking to please people. Often, we are so used to pleasing other people with our behavior that we think we should do the same for God. If mom is pleased, then God is pleased. If my spouse is pleased, then God is pleased. If my boss is pleased, then God is pleased. Pleasing other people is not the path to pleasing God. Yahweh is pleased when we trust him. Trust and faith are interchangeable words most of the time. In Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, it will be written, without faith or trust, it's impossible to please Yahweh. He is pleased when we trust him. Now, if I'm trusting Yahweh, that's going to leak into my actions. I might please my mom or my spouse or my boss, but not for their benefit or for mine, but for Yahweh alone. Paul lays out the gospel he believes in, the gospel he preaches, the gospel under suspicion in Galatia to have the apostles weigh in. Think about that level of vulnerability. He had nothing to fear from an evaluation of his gospel, but everything to gain. This, though, would be a humbling experience. Can we approach one another with open hands around our articles of faith to hear from each other, weigh things out? The truth of Yahweh will win out in such conversations. But do we fear loss or change? Do we even long for validation? Those who are convinced of the truth of their message shouldn't fear evaluation. They should welcome it. If you're in a church that doesn't welcome questions or evaluations, you may have leadership that is insecure with their allotment of truth. Another thing is unity. Christian unity is only secure when there is no compromise of the essentials of the gospel. Working towards unity doesn't mean passively submitting to the loudest misguided zealot. Truth is not negotiable. Christian unity can be disintegrated when we make non-essentials the center of the argument. Like end times, politics, race, spiritual gifts, young earth. These have been some of the quickest dividers of Christian unity. Paul saw the gospel itself as the only point of faith to dig in on. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Paul will speak of a conflict that he had with Peter. Uh Uh-oh.